morning, Burlington Christian Church and friends and family and brothers and sisters and all you guys out there. Hope you're doing great. We're talking about when God steps in and when God steps in, incredible, incredible things happen. Power comes in, direction comes in, all kinds of stuff come in. But what mostly happens when God steps into a situation is miracles happen. And they don't always happen the way we think they should happen. In fact, most of the time, they're going to happen in ways that God wants them to happen, which is totally not the way we think they should happen. So when God steps in and when God does what he does, just follow along. Let God lead you follow and you'll be just fine. God will take care of the situation. Miracles happen when God steps in. And we've talked about all these different people that when God stepped in in situations, when God stepped in, incredible things happen. And we talked about Stephen last week when Stephen came on the scene in Acts chapter 6 and Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And so his life did not last long. Well, today I want to talk about how God stepped into the life of a man named Saul. Saul in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, whose name starts off as Saul. And how God stepped into Saul's life. We're in the book of Acts. Okay, if you've got your Bible, go to the book of Acts. We're going to be there for uh, some time this morning and um, pointing out some things about what's going on in the book of Acts. First, as Acts begins, Jesus ascends back to heaven. The resurrection has happened. He's appeared to people over a period of time. Hundreds of people have seen him alive, and now they're going to watch him as he's taken up on a cloud back to heaven where he came from. Born as a baby in a, mer in, a, in a manger, he leaves on a cloud in glory, going back to his Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, just like Jesus promised the day of Pentecost, and power is poured out on God's people. The church begins to grow, and boom, thousands of people are added to the church. In Acts chapter 6, seven people are chosen because of this need that arises, and so seven are chosen to meet that need. One of those guys' name is Stephen, and we see Stephen kind of rise quickly, and before we know it, he is stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says on that day that he is stoned to death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. The church now is brand new. It's just beginning to sail, right? It's just now leaving port as, as the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And church begins to move out and, and sail where God leads it to go. There's no buildings. They're not tied down to anything. They are just free to go wherever God wants them to go. And already this church, this brand new church, is under attack. Now that might seem some strangeness to you and me. How can God let this happen? Like we ask our question, do that question a lot. Like God, how can you let this happen? Like I gave my life to you. Why would bad things happen? Why, why is this going on? See, we would think that, you know, when God steps in, good things happen, right? Like the power of God and the fortress of God and the mighty hand of God and all this were safe within his hands, right? And so it would be easy for us to ask the question, why? 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 How can this be? Like, why is this persecution coming against the church and it's just brand new? It's like an infant beginning to walk. 
How is it that bad things happen, not just to good people, but to God's people? Why would God allow this persecution and why would God allow this attack to happen to his people? That is a very good question. And that is a question that you know they had to be asking back then. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, when this persecution breaks out, they had to be asking, what did we do wrong? Are we not getting it? Are we, are we not making good decisions? Why is this happening? Why is this bad stuff happening to us? You know, just three years, just, just, uh, or they just witnessed for three years, Jesus on the earth performing miracles, healing people, signs and wonders, feeding thousands, raising the dead, himself saying, I will be uh, crucified or I'm going to be executed. I'm going to rise from the dead. And then watching him ascend into heaven, they just saw all this amazing, powerful stuff go on. And then the pouring out of his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and the, the power that the Holy Spirit brought, uh, what could possibly come up against God's people? God's got all the power. Like, why? How can this be? So you know that they wondered. You know that they asked the questions, why? Why, God? Why would you allow this to happen? And then, and then they remembered. And then they remembered. They remembered that Jesus was attacked. He was opposed. He was persecuted and mistreated. And he was executed. And they remembered that Jesus said that if they persecute me, they are going to persecute my followers as well. And they remembered that God's ways are not our ways and that what is impossible, impossible for man is, is possible for God. And they remembered that God is the God who turns the evil plans of Satan into the fulfilling of his will and that what the devil meant for harm, God will use for good. And they remembered that his ways are higher than our ways. That the all-knowing purpose is greater. His all-knowing purpose is greater than man's logic and man's intellect. And they remembered that God does things that are unexplainable in his own way, in his own time, because he has all things in mind. And they remembered that an executed Jesus placed in a cold tomb had to happen in order for the resurrection or the conquering of death to take place. That is not how we would think, but that is how God works things out. And so they remembered, they remembered, and they stopped saying why and, and how come. And they started saying, your will be done God use me however you want to use me I don't need to understand they understood that God's will is on a need to know basis and I don't need to know God doesn't owe me anything he is not obligated to tell me anything he is God and I am made from the dirt of the earth he doesn't owe me an explanation and they said things like Better is one day in your house than a thousand days elsewhere. Elsewhere, And they said things like, I would rather be the doorkeeper of the house of God than to dwell in the houses of the wicked. 
And they said things like, our delight is in the law of our Lord. And they said things like, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the principalities and the, the powers of darkness in the heavenly realms. And they understood that the God of this age is in temporary control and that one day that would all come to an end and that we all eagerly wait that day. Still, we eagerly wait that day. But now, for now, we, the church, God's people, we are in enemy territory and we, are, we will undergo attacks from the evil one. And that, that war is messy and that uh, friendly fire is going to happen and that casualties are necessary. They just saw the powerful impact of their savior and, and friend, the Lord Jesus displayed on the cross. They saw him conquer death. They just witnessed the stoning of their friend named Stephen. And they knew full well that truth, the truth of God is under attack. And that the things of God are not welcomed on this planet. See, has anything really changed in 2000 years. Has anything really changed? They remembered, they understood, and they said, and we should as well. And so when the persecution broke out on the church, Stephen is stoned to death, and the people, the people were laying their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, they understood that evil might win some skirmishes and, and, and casualties are going to happen, but that the Lord is the one who will win in the end. God's will and God's way will, will be done in the end of all things. It will be God who will stand in the end. And all those who stand with God will stand with God. He will prevail. He will have ultimate victory in the end. Saul, 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 this guy Saul, when we meet him, he's an unbeliever of the new Jesus movement. He is not for it. He is a hater of the way. He is a persecutor of all who follow Jesus. He is not buying into this Jesus thing. He is the one giving his approval for the execution of Stephen and the witnesses to Stephen's brutal murder are laying their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. You ever wonder about what that might mean? Why are they laying their coats at the feet of Saul? Well, there's a couple things that come to surface when you think about this or when you look into this. Number one, those, those people that they bribed or lied to or, or asked to lie about Stephen were the initial witnesses of Stephen's accusations, the accusations that they were bringing against Stephen. They were the ones that were saying Stephen said this, or Stephen did this, and, and they are the witnesses that brought about and led to Stephen's stoning. So these people are the ones that are going to cast the first stones. They are the ones that are going to pick up those big boulders and they're going to fire them at Stephen. Just like when Jesus, the, the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus and Jesus said, remember he wrote in the ground and he said, you were without sin, cast the first stones. So the first stones are going to be cast by the witnesses who, claim, who brought the accusations against Stephen. Secondly, secondly, 
to throw these stones, you have to take out your coat. It's hard to shoot a basket, it's hard to throw a ball if you got your coat on, your outer coat. Kind of hinders your, your movement. So they took these coats off to get them out of the way so they could hurl these big boulders at Stephen's head. Third, third, uh, this is a sign of allegiance to Saul. This is saying to Saul, as they lay their coats at Saul's feet, we are all in with you. We are all in against this attack, against this church. They were showing their allegiance to a man by the name of Saul. Saul is this chief instigator and attacker of the entire church, and the church at this time is only in Jerusalem for the most part. Even though Jesus' ministry and the apostles, they went around the whole area, Samaria and Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, that whole area, they, are, they moved through all that. So seeds have already gone out and been planted by Jesus and the apostles. But now the beginning of the church is going to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the age, you're going to take the gospel to the entire world. Well, right now, the church is only in Jerusalem. And already it's under attack by this man by the name of Saul. And so you would think that the early church would begin to wonder, how is this church going to spread to the rest of the world? We can't even get out of Jerusalem. And the answer is very simple. This man, by the name of Saul, is going to be the one responsible for scattering the church to the other parts of the world. Jesus didn't say how it was going to happen. He just said it will happen. You will go out and take the message of the gospel to the entire world. Saul is going to be, through his persecution of the church, the one that's going to spread the church to, throughout the world. He is moving from house to house. He's dragging men and women away and dragging them to prison. He is trying to stamp out this church. He is a bad man. He is not a friend of God, even though he thinks that he is a friend of God. And you gotta love chapter eight, verse four. Come to chapter eight, verse four. And it says this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, for most people, we'd run away scared and freaked out and quiet. We would not say a word. Don't speak of this. You will be persecuted. You'll be carried off to prison. All bad, kinds of bad things will happen for you if you stand up for what is right and true. You speak about this name, Jesus, you're going to prison. So a lot of people would be afraid to do that, but not these the early disciples. They were so convinced and believed so deeply in who Jesus is and who he was that when they were persecuted and they were scattered, they went and they preached the good news wherever they went. That is so ironic, isn't it? That the guy who's trying to stamp out the church, have you ever had a fire going on the ground outside and you try to stamp on it and, and all you do is push it out even further and it spreads even more. That's what's going on with Saul right now. He's trying to stamp something out, but all he's doing is spreading it even more. He's like pouring gasoline on a fire and it's only going to spread it even more. The church is scattered. It is perhaps frazzled, but it is not out of the fight. And what the enemy meant for evil, God is about to use for good, because that's what happens when Jesus steps into your life. What the devil means for harm, we keep our eyes on God and God will use it for good. And so the church spreads. Philip, 
Philip, one of the seven, he goes to Samaria and there he engages with a man by the name of Simon the sorcerer, who is a sorcerer who practices evil magic and he is going to shut him down. Then he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch and you can read about that. The word is spreading, the church is on the move like a ship out to sea and then Saul is going to be our guy that we want to look at. Saul. God is going to come into his life in a powerful way. Meanwhile, as the church is being persecuted, Stephen now is dead. And this is all in this few days, time, maybe week. Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He wants to kill them. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters of the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey. So he's on his way to this town of Damascus, and he is out to do some harm. He is on the war path to stop this church thing out. Saul, Saul is a man from Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. He is a Roman citizen, a Jew, tribe of Benjamin. He is a Greek-speaking person. That's, that's interesting. And he is trained by a guy by the name of Gamaliel in the law. And so he is a well-trained oiled machine in the Jewish traditions and customs and the Old Testament law. Saul is zealous for God. He believes with everything in him that he is doing exactly what God would want him to do in stamping out this movement. In Acts chapter 13, verse 9, there's a switch made from Saul, the Jewish name Saul, to his Roman name Paul. That's where the switch happens. Acts 13, verse 9. Paul comes onto the scene in Acts chapter 8, and 9 he has his conversion, and in 13 is when his switch of this name is going to happen from his Jewish name, Saul, to his Roman name, Paul. No, Jesus does not change Saul's name to Paul. Like, like Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. Jesus is not the one who changes Saul's name to Paul. Probably Paul goes with Paul because Paul is going to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's going to use his Gentile name, Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. If he was going to go to the Jews, he might have kept the Saul name. But he's going to the Romans. He's going to the Greeks. He's going to the Gentiles. He is going to take the name Paul with him from Acts 13 and on. And so his intentions in Damascus are not good. His intentions are kill, steal, and destroy, and that's the work of the devil. He is out to do the work of the devil, even though he thinks he is out to do God's work. He and his troops are approaching Damascus, and God is going to step in to his life. Here's what happens. Suddenly, I'm going to read from the scripture, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a loud voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and he did not eat anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple by the name of Ananias. The Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And so God is arranging the meeting of Ananias in Damascus, a believer, with Saul of Tarsus, who has come here now to persecute Ananias and others that, that believe in Jesus. Lord Ananias is going to answer, I have heard many reports about this man uh, and all, all the harm that he has done to your ser servants and saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and, the king, and their kings and, and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul is going to suffer greatly for his name. We're going to hear a little bit about that in a minute. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may be, uh, see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. He regained his strength. You can read uh, this there's three different places where we read about this account of, of Saul's conversion. In this passage in Acts chapter 9, where it actually happened, then the retelling of it to the crowd in Jerusalem in Acts chapter uh, 22, and then in Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to retell what happened to him on this road to King Agrippa. And so it would be wise to read all three accounts because he talks about different things or he brings out different things in each of the accounts. And so together we get a, a harmony of it all, which is something I love to do and you should too, is just see it all and then get the full picture of what's going on. And he changes his story in different places because he's talking to different people. And so he brings out things that matter to them. And uh, it's really interesting to see the full account of Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion. But, but God is going to step into Saul's life in a big, big way. And in Saul, he's going to have this like, I saw the light moment where, where it's going to, the conversion is going to come on him instantly like a switch. Like one minute he's persecuting the church and the next minute he is not. His conversion is unique. And it's instant. And, and, and then there's other people, there's lots of people who have that kind of conversion, but not everybody has that kind of conversion. I don't know what your conversion was like, but I know what mine was like. It was slow. It was a process. It was God slowly revealing himself to me in, over a year's time of helping me realize who he is using people, using situations, opening doors, closing doors, slowly making himself real to me, to my mind, to my heart, helping me know that it's him that was at work in me at that moment, in that time, some 40 years ago. God stepping in looks different for each and every one of us, and that's what makes it so awesome and so personal and so unique. God is going to reach you and me and others how God knows he needs to reach us. 
I think that's pretty cool. With Saul, it's more like a smack upside the, high, upside the head, come to Jesus moment. And when God stepped into his life, it was game over. Jesus said, I want you, Saul, and I want you right now. And so there's a few things that I want to point out. And this is a, a Saul being blinded by the light. Sorry, forgot to show you that pic. But this is Saul on the road to Damascus, blinded by the light. And um, a couple things uh, to take away from Saul, Paul. In his life. Number one is that Saul was deeply, deeply misled. He was a, a very aggressive after the church. He was a very devout to God person, or so he thought, in the traditions and the customs and the religion of, of the Jewish uh, people. But he was deeply misled. He was trained as a Jew, right? A student of Gamaliel, who was a great Jewish leader and teacher, rabbi of the Sanhedrin. Paul was sincere in his love and his stand for God, but he was sincerely wrong. And he allowed the systems of the religious leaders to overshadow the truth of what God says and who God is and what his word teaches. And we must be careful never to do the same thing. When we put religion ahead of God's truth, we are in the wrong. We are messed up and we are going to fall. We're in for trouble. We must always put the, the truth of God first. Here it goes. Number two, the word of God is the truth. That's it. The word of God. It's got to come first. We don't put it second. We don't put customs or traditions ahead of it. Okay? No traditions of man or customs of people should go ahead of it. Paul's mistake was putting the traditions in front of the word of God. And the truth is, Jesus was right there the whole time. And Jesus was alive when Paul was alive. Jesus was, was, it was right there the whole time for Paul. He studied all of the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. He knew that the Christ would come and the Messiah come and what he would be like. He should have known all of this. It was right there in front of him the whole time, except he chose, like all the other religious leaders, to simply ignore it. They simply ignored the truth of who Jesus is. And we should take note of this and not allow ourselves in our own personal lives to justify, to justify uh, certain behaviors or to ignore or to neglect certain things that we should be or should not be doing and to push them out, right? And avoid God's truth and his will in our life. We should be careful that we don't put the behaviors we want ahead of the truth of God and what he says just to justify the pleasures of this world in our life. We gotta be careful not to do that. Number three, when God steps in, radical change happens. For Saul, it was drastic and, and fast. It was quick. It was, Saul was like, like a heart replacement. It was like night and day, like a switch went off. Saul took this whole idea of repentance, this U-turn to a whole new level. I mean, he was going one way and the next minute he's going the other way. He, his change was like immediate. It was powerful and it brought about like instant impact right away. Everything changed for Saul. Mine took a period of time of slowly getting it. Saul was like overnight, there it is. Jesus is real, change your ways. And, and what we learned from Saul's conversion is simply this. If God can use this guy named Saul, who was a murderer and liar, persecuting God's people, 
then God can use you and God can use me in mighty, mighty ways if we'll just keep our eyes on Jesus. When God steps in, radical change happens and radical change always, always produces much fruit. The rest of Saul's life is deep devotion and passion and purpose for serving Jesus. The evidence of Saul's conversion and Jesus alive in his life is overwhelming. His willingness to be abused for the cause, his danger that he puts himself in for the mission is unreal. The sacrifices he makes to take the, the gospel to a lost world and the writing of many books and the, and the sharing of the good news with the world is evidence of God's, God's presence in his life. The complete change in the lifestyle and the direction of Saul is undeniable. Jesus changed his life forever when he stepped in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he's defending his ministry and his life. And he's speaking a bit out of his mind. He's going to boast about what God has done in his life. And Paul doesn't do that very often. In fact, he speaks against boasting, but he wants to get this point across of what he has been through, what God has brought him through in light of what he was doing to God. And he's cool with what he's had to go through. In fact, remember, Jesus said he will suffer many things for me. And so Paul is going to now point out how true that was in his life. Because remember, this is later on in Paul's ministry when he's looking back at all that God has done through him since God stepped in. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, what's confusing, I know. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from fellow Jews, in dangers from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and told and have been often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. This guy, Paul, had a life trans transformation. His whole life changed the minute Jesus came into his life. One minute he's arresting Christians and brutalizing them and dragging them off to prison. And the next minute he is, he is serving Jesus and he becomes the greatest promoter of the way. Suffered greatly for the mission of the kingdom of God. Saul, God stepped into Saul's life and his life was changed permanently and forever. Radical change took place. And that radical change in Saul's life serves as an example of the kind of radical change that should take place in anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Maybe not exactly like Paul's, but there should be radical change when Jesus comes in. Everything should change. Everything. Your life, your direction. And here's the thing, when Jesus comes in and this radical change happens, there will be no denying it and there will be no stopping it. Nobody will be able to stop it.